Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are around the UK and indeed the rest of the world. And as ever, I think we've got even more to cram in than usual um, today. So this is what we're going to do in our uh, time together, if it's okay with all of you. I've got a few reflections, um, not just one thing, but they are interconnected. It begins with my um, troubled train journey to Newcastle at the weekend. It's all interconnects. But then the main theme is going to be looking at the significance of the exodus of relatively young Tory MPs who've announced their standing down beyond the cliche, oh, you know, shows this government is running out of energy and things, people are leaving, or I'm all that's obvious, but I think something more interesting. And it's a thing that also connects to Matt Hancock in the jungle. So um, yeah, there's going to be a journey from my train to Newcastle and back, and uh, Matt Hancock in the jungle. Uh, And it will all flow seamlessly. And then uh, we return uh, to your questions, uh, which are brilliant and uh, connect also. There's that great phrase in uh, E.M. Foster novel, everything connects. And there's a big focus in your questions on uh, what the heck we do about the state of British public services, the sense of nothing working at the moment. That very neatly connects to my Newcastle experience uh, in terms of the travel. Time in Newcastle was brilliant, but onto that in a minute. And there's some other brilliant themes as well. The questions are fantastic as ever. And indeed, this kind of focus on public services was triggered partly by our French correspondent Dominica talking about the local services in her commune area uh, and comparing it with what we have in the UK. Anyway, uh, yeah, so a lot to get through and a few announcements as well. Patreon users, thank you so much for subscribing. And of course, it being close to the start of the next month, when the next month arrives, you will get your latest bonus podcast. Remember, the theme of this series pegged to the quasi Quateng budget. Do you remember Quateng and the budget? Uh, he was chancellor. Cock-ups, why they happen. Calamitous cock-ups. And on the bonus podcast series, you will have had the poll tax. But anyway, this month uh, in December, uh, I think it's the most fascinating of the lot. And actually, some echoes with the turbulence of current times. We're going to be looking at the Suez crisis. The echo is the dramatic fall of a prime minister. It is really extraordinary and intense from uh, the decision of NASA to take the Suez Canal in the summer of 56 and the speedy fall of um, Eden, the British prime minister. It is an extraordinary tale with so many uh, lessons. And so, yeah, that's the bonus podcast. And thank you for subscribing. You get this, of course, ad free and all kinds of other bonuses. Uh, So hopefully um, some more of you will join us on that version of rock and roll politics. And just a quick reminder, 
the live Christmas specials coming up at King's Place in London. That is also being streamed live, so you can see it wherever you are around the country. I hope to be doing some more live shows in other places around the UK uh, next year, but um, it's being streamed live, so you can sit there with a glass of wine, a Christmas cracker, and feel festive as we reflect on the events together of 2022 and dare to look ahead to 2023, the year of, this is 22, three prime ministers, four chancellors, five education secretaries. Blimey. And what's going to happen next? So that's at King's Place on December the 5th. And then a week later, on Monday, December the 12th, for the first time, a historic moment, live at the Old Market Theatre in Brighton. And the links to all of that will be on the blurb with the uh, podcast. So, as I said, some of your questions are about the sort of dire state of public services, partly triggered, as I say, by the comparison with France and indeed other countries in uh, Europe. One of the emails I think last week was about, uh, was from someone who had a train journey in Germany for about kind of 12 euros, long distance, all smooth and arriving on time and then coming back to the chaos here. I had a great week. I was giving the annual lecture at Newcastle University on the theme of trust in the age of globalisation. And it was good. God, Newcastle, what a fantastic city. One of the greats. So I had a great time. The people at the university were fantastic and so on. But getting there and back, you just despair, really. And I know, of course, and we've talked about it here on the podcast, you know, in the north of England, this is a daily, near hourly problem, fully aware of it. And it's, but it's all part of the same problem. So my experience was, on Friday, I put the... Uh, 8.30 in the morning, train to Newcastle. It's an Edinburgh train from London, King's Cross. And I thought, book early because there's a strike the next day. So if you book early, that surely all that should be okay. Got to King's Cross and that one was running, the 8.30. But the 8 o'clock to Edinburgh, which stopped at all these places, had been cancelled. The one after had been cancelled. And some equivalent train to Leeds had been cancelled. And they were all told to catch this 8.30. Well, it would have been easier to breathe in a crammed football match or rock concert than it was on this um, train to, uh, well, I was going to Newcastle. Some of the poor sods were going to Edinburgh. People standing all over the place, nowhere to get seats, couldn't move, no kind of, <laughs> you know, the idea of a trolley service. I mean, I know this is a minor thing, the trolley service, but, you know, it would have been like something out of a Marx Brothers film to get the trolley through this insanely packed train. I tweeted the LNER, which a lot of the passengers told me was uh, one of the best lines. Um, you know, why all these cancellations? They And they said it was nothing to do with the strike, the reply. Uh, staff shortages. And then on the way back, Another crazy thing happened. Got one of these split tickets where uh, there was already engineering works and all this kind of thing going on. So I had a train from Newcastle to Doncaster, then Doncaster to King's Cross. However, inevitably, I knew this was going to happen. The train from Newcastle was delayed and was going to miss the Doncaster to London train by about three minutes, um, maybe four minutes. And there were loads of people on this train. 
planning to change. And the staff actually on this train were great. And the driver, whoever makes these announcements, said um, he was going to phone up the train from Doncaster to London Nusket to stay where it was just for the three or four minutes to make sure we all caught it. And he tried, but he got the message back that they weren't going to wait. Um, One of the other staff explained to us that for every minute a train is delayed on some other from some other company, they get fined by network rail. I think they said 500 quid a minute or something like that. And you can see in a fractured railway system why there is a certain kind of logic to that, because network rail says, well, we've got to motivate punctuality. But when a system is serving a variety of passengers with different needs, in theory, uh, you would have thought these, there's a sort of clause which says if there's a delay on a connecting train you wait and you won't get fined but no of course not and anyway therefore the train from Doncaster to London made the train from London to Newcastle seem like a kind of spacious near empty experience um, because here there were kind of endless trains that had missed the connection all crammed into this service and again it was absurd no one could move anywhere these people you know desperate to get to the loo and all oh, it's, it's just anyway and of course the fracturing is the problem the lines blurred lines of accountability the sense that any idea of a kind of holistic purpose that the network is there to serve passengers across the UK, all connecting in different ways. It was blown out of the window with the fragmentation and the fracturing that privatisation inevitably entailed and all the different agencies. So a train company might say, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll wait four minutes. But no, they'll get fined by another agency. But the train company probably would be worried about anyway, you know, on it goes because it's different companies, different mediating agencies, different lines of responsibility. And, you know, it was very interesting watching some of the interviews with Mark Harper, the new transport secretary, where the theme was in relation to the industrial action. Are you really the one pulling the strings? And he wouldn't answer because he is largely the one pulling the strings, but not wholly. He's given some scope for the train companies to negotiate with old Mick Lynch and some of the other union leaders. But they have to turn back to Harper. And there is a logic to uh, Harper having a role because taxpayers put money in and therefore he is responsible for the way that money is spent. Uh, But there is a pretense that he doesn't have a role and it's between the train companies and the unions. And uh, so, again, no one's really in control of these negotiations and um, no one is wholly sure when they're sitting at the table whether uh, the those negotiating on behalf of the companies or network rail have authority to reach the kind of agreement uh, that might be reached if there was some figure uh, with total control, i.e. the transport secretary who so far is keeping a distance. And Frances Grady was on one of the Sunday programmes and she just said one of the keys to this is clarity. And she's absolutely Correct. And by the way, she's a very powerful advocate, I think, one of the few uh, from the sort of non-Tory wing of things who um, can explain uh, quite complex and controversial issues accessibly. And that lack of clarity is at the heart of the whole chaos of Britain's railways.
Anyway, I know what you're thinking. How's he going to connect this to departing Tory MPs and Matt Hancock in the jungle? Well, this is how. You see, while I was, um, I mean, the trains were empty and the journey from, especially on the Sunday, took hours and hours because, you know, we missed the connection and then got on a train that was packed and slower and the the first one was delayed and there were already engineering works, so it's already going to be an hour later. So I, um, I looked at Audible, you know, where you can listen to stuff and downloaded the Ben tapes, which was when Ben recorded the diaries uh, into an ancient tape recorder uh, in the 70s and early 80s. Radio 4 then did a series based around the Audible recordings. And I listened to uh, one of these uh, series uh, on the way down. By the time I'd finished every episode, we had sort of got from Newcastle to Durham or something. Anyway, they fascinated me. I really recommend them, by the way, Uh, partly because he is such an interesting and complex figure and uh, and very easy to listen to. Um, It reminds me of Tony Blair. He's got a voice you can listen to only in that sense. Very melodious voice. But there was one episode uh, which kind of, as I was sitting reading the papers about the exodus of all these Tory MPs, I was listening to an episode of Uh, just after the 1979 election. Labour had been defeated. Uh, A a period of opposition awaited. And uh, Ben talked about a visit he made with some other shadow cabinet people on the left to Michael Foote's house. And he says, this is in the aftermath of 79, he said, I said to Michael, I wouldn't be standing uh, for the shadow cabinet because I want to tour the country and put my case that party members should have a much stronger say uh, in party policy and the election of the shadow cabinet. I think it should be done by the party members. Michael was furious. Uh, Michael said, you're going to bring the party into the wilderness for decades to come. Then we talked about what Jim was going to do, Jim Callahan. Uh, and whether Dennis was going to be the next leader and how the left marshaled against Dennis. And anyway, uh, he conjured up an evening of intense political discussion in the aftermath of defeat. And what I found interesting about it, it is, was that it's, it was a reminder that it's a relatively recent phenomenon that MPs leave the House of Commons quite quickly, especially if it looks as if their party is about to lose an election. It kind of began with an exodus of fairly senior new Labour uh, people. Now, some some lose their seats. That's not their fault. Uh, But some choose to leave. Um, uh, Tony Blair himself, of course, the day after he stopped being Prime Minister, left the House of Commons. Some of his devotees, Uh, John Reid, Alan Milburn, a few others, stepped back. And then you had Cameron the same, and uh, George Osborne deciding to go off to edit the Evening Standard and and do about 25 other jobs. Uh, And now you have this constant reportage of Tory MPs, uh, some of them relatively new, uh, leaving. As I said at the beginning, the obvious reason for this is the fact that... um, they, they think they're going to lose and they therefore feel uh, less motivated to stay on. And yet, as that discussion that Tony Benn reported in his diaries post-79 shows, that not that long ago, there was this era where big political 
figures. They didn't sort of even decide it was their duty to carry on in politics. There was an assumption you carried on. And if a party lost an election, those who were in the cabinet would form a shadow cabinet or, in Tony Benn's role, a dissenting figure on the back benches. They would lose a lot of pay. Their cabinet minister's pay would no longer be coming their way. They would just get a backbencher's salary apart from the leader. And, but they would carry on. Uh, that They would then focus on uh, one of the very interesting I- issues and questions in politics, which is when a party has lost, what does it need to do to recover? It is, you know, a complex and uh, in some ways satisfying challenge. So post-79, I mean, it was destructive in terms of election defeats, but nonetheless, it was done with great passion. You had all these heavyweights battling it out for the future of the non-Tory space in British politics. Uh, Tony Benn from the left, Michael Foote from the sort of more expedient left. You then had Roy Hattersley and Dennis Healy battling it out from the kind of social democratic perspective of Labour. You had David Owen, Roy Jenkins, Shirley Williams, Bill Rogers, leaving Labour and forming the SDP, working with David Steele. But they were all even though in different ways they had lost in 79, they were all absolutely committed to the battle ahead. And the health of politics, say even though in different ways they all kind of ended up losing as a result of this intense internal battle, there was a sense that politics mattered to them and therefore mattered more widely and that there were heavyweights all over the place with language and passion and belief I don't think it would have even crossed their minds to have left politics in 79, even though, you know, someone like Dennis Healy could have made a fortune. They were all hugely talented figures, much more so than their, you know, front bench equivalents today. Uh, Foote could have left in 79 and become once again a brilliant journalist and writer. He was editor of the Evening Standard. Lord Beaverbrook, who owned the Evening Standard, loved him. Dennis Healy was multi-talented and could have got jobs on boards in the city and made a fortune. Um, Who else? You know, all of them could have made a ton of money. Imagine David Owen. Uh, He had been a youthful foreign secretary. If he had buggered off in 79, he could have done all sorts of things and made a ton of money. Now, some of them did quite well anyway on that front in the end, but they all stayed on. And these Tory politicians, they're not in the same league as the people I've just cited. There's a huge role to play if a party loses. And by the way, two years off from a general election, it's not certain that they're even on the losing side yet. There are plenty of ways I can see that um, the Keir Starmer leadership will give them certain degrees of ammunition in the build-up to the uh, 2024 election. But they are choosing to go. And I say some of them quite young which will, even though some of them are pretty insubstantial, they will be followed by some bigger figures, no doubt, in the um, period to come. And they will, uh, therefore, when they have their debate, if they need to have it after an election defeat, about what is the point of the Tory party, how do they deal with this issue of Europe that has torn them apart and continues to do so? Are they ever going to return coherently, consistently to being a one-nation party, 
in which case how do they address this continuing obsession with Margaret Thatcher, who was, in her espousal of so-called Thatcherism, a product of a precise period that went long ago, the late 70s and early 1980s. You know, these are deep, big, big questions that they haven't fully resolved. You see, Cameron conned a lot of people in the media that he had dealt with it, and he was the great modernising figure who was transforming his party, when he was, in fact, in many ways, reinforcing Thatcherism with his beliefs and appeasing Euroscepticism. So which way are they going to go? Now, this... uh, ideally would involve more heavyweights than they've got at the best of times to sort out. Um, But when they all, or some of them go, it really leaves a gap. And by go, I mean, of course, they hang around, but leave the House of Commons. It should be in the House of Commons that a party's future is contemplated, uh, or certainly by elected representatives. It's such a shame that we're now in this era of fleeting politicians who come and then lose interest quite quickly, not least if they think they're going to lose. Which brings me, see how it all fits together, to the jungle and Matt Hancock. When there is such a culture of a politician popping up for a few years and then going and, you know, this sense of politics being viewed with a kind of disdain, really. I think he was 100% right from his own particular interest to go into the jungle. Because in this era when us lot, as we've discussed many times, are not representative of voters who, to their great discredit, are indifferent to politics and have no idea what's going on because they choose not to follow it. But so they just kind of form fleeting things. They'd have probably formed about Hancock. Oh, yeah, he's hopeless, crooked, corrupt, or whatever. And they'll, they wouldn't have followed it at all in any detail. Oh, they'll have known about that woman and a fling and, you know, caught in the office and, you know. Um, but for weeks, they'll have watched him in the jungle and they'll say, oh, good old Matt, you know, he's eating someone's balls. Uh, well, not someone, kangaroo's balls. Oh, yeah, good old Matt. You know, and he nearly won, and oh, he's fun, and he's and by the way, he clearly is fun. He's, he's a one-off, and I think for you know all the wrong reasons, he was right to do it. And in a way, the Ed Balls thing is a, a parallel. In fairness to Ed Balls, uh, it was a completely different situation because he had lost his seat. Ed Balls was devastated to lose his seat, and still to this day, I think, there's a part of him that aches for a return to public service. Uh, Matt Hancock was still in the House of Commons, but then again, in fairness to Hancock, he knew he wasn't going to be part of Sunak's team in government. So where else is there a positive place to be seen uh, in the British political arena? And the answer is the jungle. There he was in the end. He was in kissing Boy George, even though Boy George was so hostile at the beginning, and all the rest of it. And and so it works. It shouldn't do. But I always remember with Ed Balls, you know, when he was, uh, uh, I think he called himself school secretary or education secretary. Anyway, I drove up with him once from his place in Stoke Newington up to his constituency where he was opening, I think it was a children's centre. 
And he was excited about it. And he was saying, this is what politics is all about, you know, making the connection between uh, the new children's centre and the battles to get the funding for it and all the other things that go on in politics for the good. And yet at the time, he had a really bad kind of unfairly bad public image. People saw him as a bully as far as people knew him at all. Um, I remember bumping into him very shortly after he had lost. And he told me that some people come up to him, oh, please, you've lost, mate. You know, and, and it, it was deeply depressing. One dance on peak time, BBC One, and he's a nation's darling, one of the great national treasures. And and that's how it is, I'm afraid. Now, you know, in, in the early 80s, actually, those internal battles, which all the heavyweights stayed on with their backbench MPs' salary to fight out, was on one level glamorous as well as significant. Um, you know, they they were great performers. You know, they performed to rallies of thousands at times in huge halls. So there was a kind of glamorous side to politics, but it mattered and it was heavy and weighty and deep. Now you have to go into the jungle to get these audiences or dance on a Saturday night uh, on, on BBC One. And so Hancock, who... um and all this kind of stuff about ignoring the, his constituents. I mean, you, you know, that, that he's been gone for three weeks. He's made £400,000. He'll get loads more money as a result of his uh, celebrity. And if he wants to stay on in politics, and who knows uh, whether he does or not, people will begin to say, oh, yeah, well, maybe we should uh, bring Matt Hancock back. He's really popular. It was said in Labour Party circles, you know, the one who could really sort things out for us now is Ed Balls. They all love him because of his dancing. So, you know, until uh, politics is again filled with really big figures with, as I say, language and artistry, and then they pack out halls. So it does. Yeah, you get the glamour and the adulation and the sparkling attention. But it's in the context of a real kind of wider weightiness. Anyway, there we are. Uh, he was right to do it. Yeah, he was right. So, you know, well done, Matt. But it's because of the way politics is at the moment. Now, connected to, you know, the, the trains is just one thing that aren't working. And by the way, of course, the strikes make it much worse, but it, it, they've been, the fragmentation has been disastrous. Uh, on so many levels. But there's a lot going on about the state of public services. You know, it, it it is a huge, huge issue, made more complex by the fact that, as I think we discussed fleetingly last week, that the tax and spend pre-election debate, uh, as conducted by the media, means it's impossible for the Labour Party to make uh, big, bold propositions in opposition, and therefore almost impossible to implement in government if you haven't made them pre-election. And yet these public services need big, bold propositions. So over to you now to make it uh, make sense of it all. And by the way, before I start, it's steverick14 iCloud.com if you want to join in our never-ending discussion where we try to make sense of it all. first one is from Jacob Warnock. And Jacob 
writes, I'm probably one of the younger listeners being only 20. No, no, Jacob, it's about the average age of our cooperative. Um, but it's great that you are. And uh, actually, a lot of students listen. Jacob's at university, he says, but I've always found your in- insights interesting and deep. I, I Thank you, Jacob. Uh, very kind of you, honestly, uh, for depth. I listened to your podcast while doing some uh, work for an essay and had to write in because the idea of the decline of the UK's public realm caught my attention. The idea that this country has never had these high quality public services in your life, my life, yeah, uh, let alone mine, fills me with a dread. Uh, For most of my life, I've seen a decline in our education system with teachers struggling for resources. Uh, I went to a comprehensive school where resources were in decline. I've seen the NHS struggle more and more with key family members being in and out of hospital uh, and the tightening of resources around them and the rushing treatment to get to the next patient. Yeah. And his grandmother, he says, died um, when going in and out of hospital during COVID. My question is, and I hope I haven't gone on too long. No, no, not not at all. When will the public have had enough and begin to demand a strong public sector? Jacob, to be honest, the, the public as in the voters are complicated on this. They want, as Roy Jenkins once observed, European levels of public services with US levels of taxation. And while that contradictory desire is in place, we are going to struggle. It's not the only issue, public spending. It's not just um, the uh, level of public investment, but those who just say it's reform without, by the way, ever specifying really what they mean by that, ignore the fact that compared with other European countries, we spend a lot less. So the investment is an issue. But the public have got to recognise that you have to pay for it. Now, I think they kind of do. So when Gordon Brown announced that big increase in NHS spending to be paid for by a rise in national insurance, it was popular. Uh, It was the most popular of his budgets, according to opinion polls. But the capacity of leaders to stage that grown-up debate is virtually non-existent. And therefore, we are, frankly, buggered. Anyway, let's move on to another related question from Mark Harper. Mark Harper is a doctor who is based partly in Brighton and partly in Norway. And he's writing from Norway. He says it's now so dark. Mark has written a book about cold water swimming, which I want to get hold of. He goes cold water swimming everywhere to prove it here in Norway. It's now so dark I've had to purchase a head torch to find my way to the local lake for my pre-work swim. Yeah, well, that is quite an image, Mark. So we're now on to the NHS in terms of talk about public services in crisis. This is the biggest one. By the way, I predict the biggest um, story over the winter will be uh, the demand not being met. Anyway, he says in the Sunday Times the other day, there was a long article about the NHS and a poll which at the time of writing is 76% in favour of charges for GP appointments. It looks at the Irish model and quotes a GP in County Donegal and chairman of the Irish Medical Organisation's GP committee. For general practice, we have a system that works, he says, which is not something any of my GP friends would say. And this uh, uh, Dr. 
McCauley, he is, continues, the people that need a GP and can afford to pay do pay, and those who can't afford to pay don't pay. We have a same-day service, we have a face-to-face service, and we have continuity of care. We have pressure, but nothing compared to the UK. Now, you know, we're back to the debate, uh, as Mark knows, about co-payment that we had some time ago. I'm in favour of it, but I know many of you are not. We're split because we've had our uh, correspondents in Belgium, Germany and other parts of the Rock and Roll Cooperative all exploring this. Uh, Mark, I'm sure you were engaged with the debate at the time. But it is interesting. I hadn't realised in Ireland there was this charge and that people accept it. Anyway, thank you, Mark. Enjoy that pre-work swim. Uh, Don't trip up in the darkness as you head tentatively towards a freezing cold lake now this is sort of related but not quite we've got a real range here we've just had mark from norway and this is uh fraser odes is it from santander in spain is that how you pronounce the surname fraser forgive me if not now oh yeah i should say i'm still getting lots of emails about electoral uh reform and i'm putting them away in a file called electoral reform because we had two sessions so i don't want to sort of Uh, focus on it for now but um, they're all there for when we return to it Uh, but I have uh, just plucked this out because it is quite interesting he says that one of the emails you received argued that PR would allow extreme parties to gain power well I hate to break it to your emailer but the UK has an extreme party in power right now under first past the post in fact I challenge him you or anyone to name an actual policy of the Italian government and the UK's conservative one uh, and to see which one is more to the right for example and of course Italy has got uh, uh, famously now a right-wing government Italy wants to share out refugees whereas the UK has banned them To be clear, it's not that I want to defend the new Italian government, but rather to label the UK's for what it is. Yeah, I think one of the underestimated kind of ways of making sense of the current political situation in the UK is the degree to which the Conservative Party has moved to the right over many years. Uh, It's not sudden. And as I've explored before, there are attempts occasionally to reconfigure it. Uh, Theresa May with her look at the good the state can do and Boris Johnson with his Rooseveltian public spending instincts, although in both cases these were stuttering attempts to steer their ship uh, towards calmer shores. Um, but yeah, it, it, you're right. There's a good correction there, Fraser. Uh, the first past the post has actually, under that system, propelled the Conservatives further and further to the right. I mean, it's not just the voting system. Other factors have come into play. Thank you very much. Uh, Laundry Joe, so-called, because he does his laundry as he listens. Why did Gordon Brown uh, keep Bank of England independence secret prior to the 97 election? A seemingly sensible policy capitalises on Tory weakness uh, at the time, Black Wednesday, and costs nothing. Why did they leave it until after the election to reveal it? Well, Laundry Joe, you have to. These kind of big economic announcements which can have market implications, you can't really announce in advance. Looking back, there were quite strong hints that that's what Gordon Brown and Ed Balls had planned, but no one picked them up. Uh, anywhere. But to have formally pre-announced it would have 
uh, cause them all kinds of difficulties. Yeah, Noah Keat writes about the uh, falling out of love of politics of Conservative MPs. I think we've kind of covered that one, uh, Noah. So let's now return to uh, a bit about Europe. Uh, Sport Paul Stakelispol, I think that's the pronunciation, uh, in Renhold in Bedfordshire. Further to your comments last week on the need for a closer relationship with the EU if Britain is to have any hope of economic growth. It occurs to me that moves like rejoining the single market can't be achieved unilaterally but will require the active cooperation of the EU. Given the behaviour of the British government since 2016, why on earth would this be forthcoming? Uh, yeah, uh, that's uh, part of the issue is uh, what the EU would do in response. However, I think if there were a change of government, um, uh, a Labour government uh, with a uh, desire to move closer to the single market to generate the growth that the next Labour government will be utterly dependent on to deliver better public services. And anyway, is Keir Starmer's stated objective. I think the EU would respond positively. And I know the view of the shadow cabinet members I speak to is that um, there will be a much more positive relationship, uh, but that they have had to rule out uh, free movement uh, for electoral reasons. But I don't want to get into all that again, because we did explore some of that uh, last week. Yeah, Peter Sumner uh, has written in with a very, I mean, there's a whole podcast to be done about localism, local government and everything. Anyway, he is, uh, his thoughts been triggered by our discussion on the French commune system. And he says, you and I live in the London borough of Haringey. We do indeed some of whose services work okay, but where there have been prolonged allegations of corruption over property developments and a couple of national scandals involving social services. What improvements in the running and governance of local government in England do you think might be worthwhile? Well, if it's all right, Peter, I'm I'm going to just do about 10 seconds here on the dilemmas. Um, There is no doubt in my mind that um, if you can get the right accountability in place, Uh, local delivery of services um, can be greatly improved. As you know, I'm obsessed by the success of the introduction of a mayor in London uh, and the improvement of public services, specifically transport, that has arisen directly as a result of that change uh, because of the clear lines of accountability. And... um, There are many dilemmas about giving local government more power. Central government provides quite a lot of the money, therefore has a responsibility, a bit like the railways, uh, as to how that money is spent. But the moment it exercises that responsibility, you undermine the issue of local accountability. Uh, Peter, if you join Patreon, don't know whether you do, the whole thing about the poll tax is very interesting. It was an attempt by Thatcher to establish much clearer lines of accountability with local councils by making everyone pay for the services. But of course, that led to arguments about fairness. Anyway, thank you for raising it as a whole, whole uh, podcast series to be done on that. Uh, Thank you. Roger McNaught. It seems to me that we need to exercise much greater control of our representatives. And our current lot uh, would be unlikely to be too happy with this. 
After all, our politicians are as likely as to vote for anything they see as a reduction, are unlikely to vote for a reduction in their powers. It seems that ex-MPs are not particularly employable. And this th- the thought is apparently concentrating the minds of current Tory MPs. Perhaps if serving as an MP for a fixed term, non-extendable, uh, will seem more like spending a few years doing VSO than it would attract a different kind of person. Now, I, fixed term for MPs, Roger, I don't, it wouldn't work. Uh, and in fact, it would deter talent from coming, I suspect, uh, because they arrive, most of them, with long-term ambition. Now, that ambition is quite often not realised. I don't think that's the problem with representation. I think it's about the way MPs are selected when they become, you know, to be candidates. And that, too, is another podcast. See these questions this week, the whole podcast in these uh, questions. Um, Now, we're running rapidly out of uh, time, so I'm going to just summarise these ones very quickly that I'd plucked out from the many hundreds of brilliant uh, questions. Anthony Wilson, I've been enjoying the electoral reform special and the Jaws-like sequel while driving around the wilds of the West Country to support my trainee teaching students on their school placements. With teacher recruitment and retention in crisis, isn't it time that we heard more about education and training from the main political parties? Yeah, on that specific issue, uh, Anthony, you know, I'm sure it will be one of the themes of a Labour government. The problem about talking about labour shortages for Labour at the moment is beyond saying rather vaguely that the solution is to train British workers so they become qualified for all the vacancies. They haven't got much of an answer. Um, But let's see what happens. You know, education will clearly be central to the next uh, government, if it is a Labour government. And I know uh, the current Shadow Education Secretary, uh, Bridget Phillipson, is is a deeply impressive figure who um, will, I'm sure, be reflecting on this, Anthony. Uh, Oliver Hurd, uh, do you agree with me that if Labour get in next time, they should immediately scrap the Tories' new voting rules for UK citizens of elections? For example, having to bring ID to vote? Yes, but there's a twist, in my view, Oliver, but again, you've triggered a whole podcast. I'm a massive supporter of national ID cards. I think it will solve a lot of problems, by no means all of the things we've reflected on today, but some of them. Um, But yeah, this attempt to, uh, in effect, it will cause big problems, I think, at the next election with people arriving without the correct ID. Kevin in Dublin via Cork said you uh, queried if your listener in West Cork, I think that was uh, Jeff Strange, was having a Guinness. Pro tip is the best stout in West Cork. Right. In in Cork City, the Beamish. And I suppose whatever your preference elsewhere, well, thank you very much for that. I'm determined to get out to Ireland next year. Kevin hasn't just written to advise me what to drink when I go, uh, or all of us what to drink. He says, it strikes me that for Scotland and Northern Ireland, the most likely route to the instability of leaving the UK is a continuation of the Johnson Trust ERG uh, approach. Uh, Sunak seems to be taking a much more conciliatory approach. Um, And uh, that might lead to a more constructive 
uh, outcome to some of these controversies. Kevin, let's see. Uh, he is he is a much more of a conciliatory character in personality terms than Johnson or uh, Truss, and I'm sure dreads the idea of confrontation over the protocol, for example. But he is trapped by so many elements of his parliamentary party, and words alone and tone cannot of themselves provide a solution. But let's see. Uh, Tony Ellis is also fascinated by Dominic uh, Jewell and her commune. He says, I've often wondered how and why even the tiniest French villages have better public spaces than even small towns in the UK. The government doesn't trust us, he says here, to give responsibility to our local representatives. Well, that leads us back uh, to the discussion uh, we've just had about um, the delivery of local provision and the some of the problems that go with that are cited in uh, Haringey. But yeah, it's how do you do it when central government provides quite a lot of the money and, and therefore has some of the responsibility of finding out how it's being spent? Uh, Book and Fred wonders, uh, I say, I'm really enjoying the uh, podcast. Where do you get the show's theme track from and who plays it? This theme music. Some people don't like it. Oh, that theme music. Oh, right. Some people love it. And it starts there running, you know, when they say, I like it a lot. I don't know. Uh, I got a BBC brilliant producer to fix up the uh, podcast at the beginning. Uh, I now record with the brilliant podmasters. But at the beginning, I just at my house um, got the whole thing sorted. And, and he found we had to pay for it. It cost me a fortune. You, 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 there's music you can pay for to use in podcasts. Um, and I, do you know what? I have no idea what it is. By the way, it's probably Fred Bookham, isn't it? But it's, it, anyway, Fred. Who, whatever, I don't know, but I'm pleased you like it. And at the live shows we play at the beginning, kind of gets everyone really excited. Uh, talking of which, uh, Tom Buckner writes, uh, have tickets for Rock and Roll Politics on the 5th of December. Oh, great. See you there, Tom. First time at King's Place. Fantastic. Although the government won't, what do you think would happen if it went for a Swiss-style deal with the EU? And Labour voted for it. What would happen to the Tories? Well, if those barriers were all neat, the Tory party would split, Tom. Um, but none of those barriers are going to be leapt, as uh, you said at, at the beginning. Um, so Labour won't face that dilemma. Um, but, yeah, we're in a mess with Europe because every route at the moment is blocked for political reasons, not for what is best for the economy, which is on the edge of a cliff. news your favorite history nerds are back yes we at we are history have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops well i have john you mostly went around finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays if i can find them it's a bonus we are ready to tell you all about what we've learned from the revolting french to some revolting women via some brits abroad and a foul-mouthed irishman so download we are history our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast with me john O'Farrell and me Angela Barnes wherever you get your podcasts Derek Neal says having spent some time in France over the past 10 years I can vouch for the fact that public transport is better organized and cheaper tell us about it 
and that energy prices are lower, that towns and cities are better maintained. Given that the nation's problems here are so varied, long-standing and deep-rooted, is there any solution or, in brief, are we fucked? We're allowed to, it's a podcast, not the BBC, I can say it. Anyway, uh, yeah, uh, Derek said it. Uh, yeah, we are, is the quick answer, uh, Derek. But on the cooperative here... For months, actually, and for many months to come, we're going to look at why and also solutions, themes, big, rich themes. We're going to have deep themes in the build-up to the uh, next general election, as well as exploring the soap opera of the drama of politics. Ollie Turner, uh, really enjoyed the podcast. I'm using the Couch to 5K running app to get my fitness on track, listening to your musings. My musings? Blimey, Ollie. While I run makes the experience far more enjoyable. You're a form of anaesthetic. Well, that's honestly the greatest, most romantic compliment I've ever had. Uh, in fact, you know, when I used to go out, people used to say, oh, Steve, you're like an anaesthetic. A lot of commentators from Ollie Turner, to whom I'm an anaesthetic, a lot of commentators argue that Labour should be hammering the issue of crime, which is a real emotional resonance. Do you agree uh, they should be saying more about crime? Actually, Ollie, they're saying quite a lot. I do agree with it. It's, it you know, it, it's obvious to me anyway that it's, it's an issue for uh, any potential governing party. You know, the fact that it became such a potent soundbite for Tony Blair when he was Shadow Home Affairs Secretary, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime, soundbite incidentally invented by uh, Gordon Brown, it shouldn't have been. I mean, it 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 was it 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 is a very neat summary, but it, it it's a statement of the obvious: dealing with crime is not punitive; it's actually a form of liberation because it liberates people to feel safer. Um, that word, well, I use liberate, but freedom, freedom. The great canon, Reverend Canon Paul Arbuthnot emailed me some glorious photos from a bar in Dublin that features in uh, James Joyce's uh, Ulysses. Uh, so I was really interested to hear your latest podcast on the seeds of a soft Brexit being sown. With regard to the Northern Irish Protocol, it's not a case of an all-Ireland economy thriving as a result of it. It's much more nuanced than this. Um, different sectors of the Northern Irish economy have fared differently depending on where they rely for their inputs. For example, food processing has done well out of the protocol, but electrical engineering, which relies on GB inputs, hasn't. And uh, yeah, Paul goes on to explain uh, how complex it all looks. Um, and, and, and he says it looks like Northern Ireland will remain with the UK for a while yet. Um, but a good start to helping keep Northern Ireland on an even keel would be the UK joining the customs union and the single market. Yeah, I completely agree. And thank you for the nuanced assessment. It's only by joining the uh, common market and the single the customs union, the single market, that you have an answer to the Irish question. Um, with uh, the unification of Ireland being an alternative answer if you don't go down that route. I suspect in the end that's where Britain's going to end up. But how? Well, I haven't got a clue, frankly. Anyway, look, they've got many, many more questions. Sorry, we've, we've been going on for nearly an hour in our time together. And you'll have done all kinds of creative things during it. Um, but hopefully uh, you've had a, 
uh, kind of we've all had quite a stimulating time, haven't we? We've gone from the jungle to all sorts of things. Um, but look, thank you so much for listening. If you like it, if you could leave a review, that would be fantastic. And I said at the beginning, thank you to all the um, uh, those of you on Patreon who very kindly uh, subscribe and uh, get a few uh, bonuses en route as well. Um, so I'm going to now, this is what we do occasionally as part of the whole uh, thing, is thank actually some of you uh, uh, Patreon uh, backers. Um, so, and, and, and you've been doing it for some time and I greatly appreciate it. So thank you very much to, uh, uh, the, the, um, we're going to do different names each week. Uh, these are the ones, uh, the great, uh, uh, pioneers of, uh, uh, the, uh, podmasters who, uh, produce this podcast have plucked out Danny Barker, John Conway, Jonathan Flintham. Bruce Goro, sorry if I, uh, Bryce Goro, sorry Bryce if I've mispronounced your surname, I hope that's right. Ed Gransoll, Callum Branwell, James Sweeney, Mark Donoghue. Thank you so much uh, for subscribing. More names to be read out and you'll all get the bonus uh, podcasts on. Well, I think I didn't realise that the Suez crisis was quite so intense. It was much more intense, actually, than the pretty intense build up to the war in Iraq. It was extraordinary. Anyway, that bonus podcast coming uh, at the start of uh, December for those of you who kindly subscribe. And to all of you, please come along to uh, King's Place, uh, the main concert hall there, or the old market theatre in Brighton if you can. If you can't, you can watch it on the stream on December the 5th. There are streaming tickets on the King's Place uh, website where you can say sit back with a glass of white wine. And those of us who are live can actually all have a glass together before, after, during, you know, the kind of thing. And, well, who, what's going to be, what are we going to be looking at next week? Who knows? Um, but uh, thank you so much for uh, joining in writing questions, making points, uh, and getting on with all the creative things required to keep this rock and roll politics rocking uh, as a greatest cooperative and a big, big threat to John Lewis's. Um, anyway, uh, John Lewis's? John Lewis, whatever. Look, thank you. Have a great week. See you soon. Bye. Bye.